Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Research in Pharmacy Practice. This series focuses on discussions for all things related to research, including fundamentals, best practices, and practical advice for all those interested in contributing to the advancement of knowledge. I'm Barbara Nussbaum, the Vice President for Research and Education with the ASHP Foundation. I'm pleased to introduce our host for this episode, Dr. Michael White, Distinguished Professor at the University of Connecticut School of Pharmacy and the Vice Chair of the Foundation's Research Advisory Council. Thanks, Dr. Nussbaum. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Craig Coleman, a professor and researcher at the University of Connecticut School of Pharmacy and Hartford Hospital, about how to initiate a research career and then how to sustain it at a high level over a prolonged period of time. So welcome, Dr. Coleman, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Well, you've had quite a career as a researcher. You were selected an ACCP Young Investigator of the Year, won the ASHP Foundation Drug Therapy Research Award for the Best Publication of the Year multiple times, and in December 2020, received the coveted ASHP Foundation Award for Sustained Contributions to the Literature. These awards underlie a body of work with hundreds of highly cited publications and being selected to be an Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality Evidence-Based Practice Center. So let's dissect how some of those successes came to be, if there were any some hidden failures mixed in that uh, helped to lead to some of that success, and what lessons that aspiring and mid-career researchers can extract from your story. So are you ready for some hard-hitting and probing questions? Let's do it. All right. So you decided to train at Hartford Hospital and the University of Connecticut in pharmacoeconomics and outcomes research to be able to hone your research skill. But something happened along the way. Your director leaves and you're moved to train with me, a young faculty member doing cardiovascular clinical pharmacology work. What were you thinking when you were suddenly thrust into that group whose focus and skill set was very different than what you signed up for? Uh, It's it's a great question. So I had learned a lot during my time uh, in regards to the technical skills of pharmacoeconomics and outcomes research during the first year of my fellowship before my director left. By moving over to your group, while it was initially very in perhaps anxiety producing, not that because you're not such a, a great guy, but simply the idea of having to make that transition from one position to another. So despite all that, what I ultimately realized is that in a lot of ways, it was a blessing. You know, I was able to apply the skills I learned during the first year of my fellowship with you on a lot of the projects that you had on ongoing. And this included doing research such as doing pharmacoeconomic sub-studies or humanistic outcome sub-studies of your randomized controlled trials. You were also uh, a fabulous uh, teacher in terms of improving my scientific writing. And so there was a lot of opportunity for me to to grow even uh, as a researcher, even though I wasn't in the, the same fellowship program that I initially started off on. And honestly, I feel that in some ways, the earlier you realize that everything or earlier to realize that everything in your research career isn't going to go exactly as you planned, perhaps the better off you are. 
Yeah, so I think it comes down to the meaning of writ, right, and uh, how you end up handling some of those uh, some of those issues. So your fellowship director leaves, and this gives you a great opportunity because now a position is available at the University of Connecticut for when your fellowship is uh, is going to end. You apply. You ultimately are given this position to be her successor, but now you're in a precarious situation in academia that you have the ability to collaborate with a former mentor while also having to navigate your own path and be able to show independence as you move toward your tenure evaluation. Now, a lot of people find themselves in this uncomfortable position. Either they've gotten an aligned position or they remain in a health system with someone they've worked with for a long period of time. And how do you feel that you come out of that shadow and how do you make your own name in that world as a young investigator? Well, since our skill sets were so different, it wasn't as much of an issue for me personally coming to work at the University of Connecticut along with you. Again, your expertise was really in cardiovascular medicine and cardiovascular research, where mine was in more agnostically health economics and outcomes research, where I certainly enjoyed cardiovascular or cardiometabolic research but it wasn't my only true interests and passions. In my case, adding quality of life or pharmacoeconomic sub-studies to your clinical trials allowed me to contribute to the study as a whole while also having a very unique part of the study that I could carve out and call my own. And so when we went to publish our results, if you'll remember, you would often be the first or corresponding author on the clinical portions of the studies, but then there'd be separate papers where I would serve as the first or corresponding author on the pharmacoeconomic or health economic portions of the studies, as well as the humanistic outcomes that I was able to add into your clinical trial, because you were always very accepting of me being able to say, okay, well, you have a great clinical trial plan, but what else can I add to it, perhaps in terms of questionnaires or data collection data points that could potentially improve the study. Additionally, we've always had some things that are that we do better by ourselves than we do together, which means we all I always had kind of a little piece of research or areas of research that were uniquely my own. And so I think that helped as I moved through my academic career to demonstrate that I wasn't just someone who worked with C. Michael White, but I was Dr. Craig Coleman and someone who had my own research interests and my own research program. For young researchers, I think they need to realize that collaboration is okay, and perhaps it's even a huge benefit in their research careers, but you need to realize that you need to be able to show what your unique contributions to individual projects are. I also think it's important that you understand, people understand truly what it means to have a collaborator. Right? A collaborator to me is somebody who, who makes you better, who you work with synergistically, who brings skills to the table that perhaps you don't have and can improve your research, right? And that's a little different than just having a, a research partner or being someone who you work with where you're sharing the burden of the work, but you're really, that person may not necessarily be bringing anything necessarily to the table. Right. And so when me working with you and you working with me, it was truly a collaboration. We were 
both bringing in something that was truly unique to our research program. And again, it makes it in that case fairly easy to demonstrate what our independent contributions were. Yeah, you know, I, I think if you're a new investigator and you're working with someone who is uh, who's more established, that at some point they have to allow you the opportunity to be the bride and not always the bridesmaid, right? So if you're always Absolutely. finding yourself working on a bunch of different papers and you're always out of seven or fourth out of seven authors, then at some point you need to have a conversation, you know, where is this relationship going? You know, is it uh, is it going to, to wind up allowing me to see some of that sunlight? Now, in a Darwinian homage, one of the things that I uh, that I always hear you say is that it isn't enough for you to be knowledgeable and skilled when you leave a training program, that you also need to be able to be adaptable in order to survive over the course of a career. So how has your research area changed over time and what external pressures facilitated that change? Yeah, so I absolutely agree. You have to be adaptable. And the way I've always felt in my research career that I was able to be adaptable is that, and this is partially because my research director left early, is I learned to be a self-teacher very early on in my research career, how to learn new skills, right? And so when I started off as an independent researcher, I was, again, doing pharmacoeconomic substudies or humanistic outcome substudies associated with other people's randomized controlled trials that they had ongoing. In the very beginning of my career, that was in preventing post-operative atrial fibrillation patients with undergoing cardiothoracic surgery. But, you know, and I think, as you know, we've probably looked at every possible agent, both pharmacologic and natural product that could be used to prevent post-operative atrial fibrillation. And you get to a point where, okay, well, that research line has been kind of completely not completely, but very hard to find new interesting areas to do clinical trials. And so not only from a clinical perspective, did we have to come, did I have to come up with new ideas or new areas to perform research in, but I also had to make sure I had the research skills to how to apply different research methodologies. So I went from just doing pharmacoeconomic sub-studies to perhaps doing pharmacoeconomic modeling or Markov modeling and then learning how to do systematic reviews and meta-analyses. And finally, how to work with large data sets, whether it be originally I started off working with Harvard Hospital's post-cardiothoracic surgery database so I could continue some of that atrial fibrillation prevention research. But then by learning those skills, being able to use larger data sets, such as commercial data claims and electronic health record data sets that are available. So by being able to learn all these various different skills, I was able to respond to both internal and external pressures that were put on me as a researcher. So external pressures included, again, funding sources and the types of research I could do. Pharmacoeconomics, every once in a while, I, in my opinion, goes through these peaks and valleys of whether people are interested in doing it and where the funding and how much funding is available. The same is true for systematic reviews and meta-analyses. There was a period of time when we were I was doing phenomenally as a co-director of an AHRQ-funded evidence-based practice center. And that's when the government had a fair share of money to invest into that type of research. But then 
after a couple of years, that money dried up. And so needed to move research lines or topics, but also research methodologies. And now one of the big areas to which I do research is in large databases and this in real world evidence studies. And this has become a very important part of research, both from a governmental funding standpoint, but also from a pharmaceutical company funding standpoint. And so I think being able to respond to the changes in the types of research and where the funding is, has you know definitely been beneficial in my career. So you, you go from adding quality of life and economic sub-studies to clinical trials, and you're going to go into, uh, into big data. How do you know you're doing it right? Well, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, you have to, again, take the time to make sure that you learn, you learn the skills. You know, you want to find, again, collaborators that can help you learn those skills again. And at the same time, perhaps you're providing them with something that's valuable as well. You have, there's organizations that are out there. For instance, the ASHP Research Foundation, you know, ACCP, the organizations that have grant funding and opportunities for young investigators to learn new skills, to potentially partner with more advanced or more longer term career researchers. And I think it's important to take those opportunities whenever they're available and to really really try. But you also have to realize that sometimes you're going to try things and it's not going to work out the way you want. And you know, it's okay to fail. Even if you fail at something, you still learn. And not everything is, not every time I've written a grant has it been funded. And not every uh, study I publish is destined for JAMA or the New England Journal of Medicine. It's okay to, uh, rejection is part of learning. So Who funds your work and how are you able to convince them to give you money, especially early in your career or in those periods where you were talking about pivoting from one research area to another in a field that maybe other people are already there and they already have more experience? So, you know, how do you get somebody to give the new guy either in your career or in a new area of research a a shot at getting some of that funding? And then after that, has the ASHP Foundation in particular helped to support your career over the years? Absolutely. So relation, I think relationship building is one of the number one things you can do early on in your career as a new as a new investigator or a new researcher in order to become more competitive for funding. I often see, unfortunately, particularly within pharmacy is a career that there are a lot of pharmacists who are resistant, for example, with getting involved with the pharmaceutical industry, but they can be excellent partners in terms of potential research funding. And the way you get, for instance, pharmaceutical companies to see you as an expert is for you to go and to talk to them. You know, when the, the medical science liaisons or the district managers are around and they want to talk about your opinions on a new drug or the types of research that you would like to be, that you would like to see be performed. I think it's incredibly important that you go and talk to them because then they realize, okay, well, this guy's this, this guy or this girl, this woman, this, they're, they're smart. They know what they're talking about. They have great ideas, right? And so relationship building is number one. 
eventually through that relationship building, what I found is you'll get opportunities. Some opportunities will be smaller opportunities or opportunities, for instance, that organizations like the ASHP Foundation, as well as other pharmacy organizations, other medical organizations provide. Some of them will come from the pharmaceutical industry. But what I found then is, is you want to be the best steward of their research funds and of their research objectives as possible, which means you don't want to overpromise things. You always want to deliver things on time, on budget, and do the best possible job that you can do. And once they realize that you're the type of researcher who delivers on their promises, who not only has the good ideas, but has the ability to actually execute those ideas, then they're far more likely to come back to you. And then the more grants that you bring in, even if they're small grants in the beginning, right, you start to develop a reputation and a, a CV that demonstrates that you have the capability of taking on bigger and better projects. And I think to me, that was kind of the path that I took and how I was able to eventually become a successful researcher from a grant funding standpoint and not just a publication standpoint, right? And I think organizations like the ASHP Foundation and the type of exposure that they can help you get, not only from, from the grants and funding opportunities they provide, but also through the awards that they provide and the recognition that they can provide researchers, whether you're an academic researcher or a clinical pharmacy researcher, or even a new student researcher. I mean, that type of exposure is very important to helping you meet the people you need to meet and make the relationships that you need to uh, develop. So research foundations, usually when you're putting in a proposal, they want to hear more granularly about you know how this is part of your long-term research path, you know, what step it is that you're taking and how it's going to help society more globally. When you're writing something from for a pharmaceutical company, it seems like you need to be more targeted. You need to identify for that company specifically how a project like this is going to give you a specific benefit in terms of a regulatory affairs issue that they may be experiencing, that it's going to give them marketing benefits, that there's some tangible benefit specifically to them, not just a benefit to uh, to society. But what's your feeling about that and how you approach different places to get money? Oh, yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah. A grant that you write to a foundation or a governmental organization is going to be different than a grant that you write or even a research hypothesis that you might even bring to a pharmaceutical company, right? You need to realize that, you know, they have different goals in mind and that they need to develop different types of data. And so when I, I agree that, that that when you're writing a grant proposal for a foundation, it turns into a, it's often a very big, re, almost like systematic review of everything that's been done before and how you're building on top of that and how, in you know, and how sound your methodology is going to be. When you're talking to a pharmaceutical company, it's taught, it's more about thinking about potentially pitching them a niche area where their drug may be beneficial or a type of research gap that exists that you may be able to fulfill based upon the skills you have and the resources or data sources that you have available to you. 
So they're certainly not interchangeable. But one important thing that I always I learned from you very early on is when you write a grant, whether it be for a foundation, whether it be for a, a pharmaceutical company, when you write these grants, even if they're not funded, right, you still did good work and that you should make use of that good work. And so we always talked about, okay, I wrote this, you wrote this great comprehensive grant to send uh, the Corey or AHRQ, it didn't get funded, but with a little bit more work, you can take that and you can convert it over to a really great review article, right? And then publish it in a really great journal. And then that's going to get you an attention. Show funders that, you know, look, you're an expert in this area. Look how, look how much you know about it. And the same thing for pharmaceutical companies. I've gotten approached by pharmaceutical companies based simply on review articles about their drug where I, that I've written for even a trade journal where they see it and said, wow, okay, you really understand. You have some great ideas about what our drug is and what gaps exist. And we want to talk to you more about it. And that, again, that starts building that relationship. Again, which to me is always the beginning. You build that relationship with funders. You learn what they're interested in and then how you as a researcher can help them achieve their goals. Yeah, you know, I think that there's a lot of people who want to have research careers that are more dreamers than uh, than doers, right? And one of the things that I found that can really differentiate you as you're starting out is what can you do for free that can show that you really know things about this area and that you can insert yourself into the literature? Is there a case report that you think is particularly compelling? Is there a review article that you could, uh, could you do? Could you do a pilot observational study in order to be able to show that you have the ability to use these kinds of methods, even though you're not doing it necessarily on the project that you would really want to do it on, but you're doing it on a small piece in order to be able to demonstrate that you also can live in that in that environment. Absolutely. So going from being a trainee to someone who's now trained many research fellows over multiple years and having graduates that went on to some of their amazing careers in industry, academia, and hospital pharmacy, what are you looking for when you're interviewing a research fellow? And how do you go about setting up and, and putting forth their training in order to be able to uh, take a lot of the things that we already talked about and help that next generation of researchers start off on the best foot. Well, Mike, I think, as you know, I'm a big movie buff, right? So I, it kind of makes me think of uh, Rocky Three. You know, you have to have the eye of the tiger. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for out of a fellow candidate when I'm when I'm doing interviewing. I want them to have the desire to make a name for themselves in the profession, a willingness to try new things, a willingness to try to make the most out of their fellowship opportunities that I may be providing them as possible, right? Over the years, I've had different types of fellows, and I, I, I might refer to some of them as, yeah, you have some of the superstars, and you have some of them what you quote, quote, call the perhaps a, a clock puncher, where the clock puncher, not that they don't do good work, they work their their nine to five hours, and they do what they do what they do. They do what they're supposed to do, and they do it fairly well. But they don't necessarily have the drive to squeeze every last drop of water out of that rock, which is their fellowship. 
And then you sometimes you have fellows who who understand that this is two years of opportunity to build their research skill set, their toolbox, and they want to grasp at every possible opportunity. And so I often have fellows who come for interviews and they're asking me a question like, well, I don't have any research, prior research experience or I have very little research experience or I don't know how to do statistics or I don't know how to do that. And my response to them is, is it's okay that you don't know something. In fact, it's good that you know what you don't know, right? What I'm looking for in a candidate is someone who really wants to learn and who really is, wants to spend as much time as possible during their fellowship to try to learn everything that I can possibly impart to them during that time. That's kind of my main philosophy. And the way I try to design my fellowship is I think about all my best mentors that I've ever had. And I try to take the stuff that I loved about my mentors, and that's the stuff I keep. And I throw away some of the things about my mentors that... I didn't like. Ultimately, the one thing that I do that I think is unique in terms of teaching my fellows is I want them, again, to learn how that they have to become good independent researchers. And that's what I'm trying to teach them. They need to learn how to learn new things for themselves. Because after they leave my fellowship, sure, if they call me, I'm always happy. And it's happened plenty of times. I'm always happy to help them out and help them learn new things and answer questions for them. But they're really only going to be successful in a long-term research career if they have the ability to learn new things and put new tools into the research toolbox. And while as a fellowship director or, as a, or, or a research director who's trying to get a lot of projects done, that's not necessarily the most efficient way for me to get work done. But I think it's the best way to make a a young researcher viable to have a very productive career. Yeah. So I think being a couple doors down, hearing you talk to some of your fellows, one of the things that I'll hear is they'll come in and they'll ask a question. And maybe the question would be relatively rudimentary. And the thing that I'll hear you say is, well, I'll answer your question, but first answer this question. If you were going to answer this question for yourself, where would you go? what would you look at, right? And then in some cases, you then do the baby bird uh, approach, right? They open their mouth and you put the pre-digested worm in it for them. But sometimes you send them out and you're like, well, go try that and then come back and tell me what you think the right answer is. And then we'll go from there. So why is it important for people to try to do something themselves before they come in and be able to ask the question, because it's going to be less efficient. It's going to take more time for them to uh, to do it. Yeah, again, exactly. As, a, as someone who's trying to run a research program and get as much work done as possible and get as many publications and as many grants, it's absolutely not the most efficient way for me to do it. But people often ask as well, you know, they people think that because when you have research fellows that they're somehow augmenting your research career and they're like extra labor. And I think that's the probably the worst way of thinking about fellows is to think of them about extra labor or force multipliers, right? I think it's important that it's kind of like the medical adage, see one, do one, teach one. For someone to tell you how to do it or to do it for you, I mean, there's only so much you're going to learn. I think you have to you have to lay hands on it. You have to play with the software. You have to 
try out the methodologies. You have to play with the data, massage the data, as you would say, love the data, see what you can do with it and see if you can be successful. And if you fail at it, it's okay because you still learn something, right? And that's the kind of the concept between see one, do one, teach one. So I start off by, yeah, I might show you a good example of something, a fellow, I show him a good example of something that I've done in the past. And then I say, well, now we're working on this new topic. Can you adapt what I did to this current project and go and try and see what happens? And if it doesn't come out the way you think it does, well, that's okay. We'll figure out what went wrong. And you know, as you said, I'll, we'll, we'll slowly feed them the information and the, the details that they need. Right. And then once they've done that successfully, I like to see that they're able and I have often have my fellows working with research students so that they can teach the research students how to do it as well. And often I see them using the same see when do one teach the methodology or, as you say, the baby bird regurgitation method that I use. And once you can teach somebody else how to do it, then you really know you've got it mastered or you kind of get the con the concept lift. And so I think it's incredibly important that young researchers are willing to put themselves out there. It's okay if you fail. You can't win if you don't play. You can't be successful if you don't try. And you're never going to be in a situation outside of your trainee, whether you're in your residency or your fellowship program, where you're going to you're going to have that type of engagement where someone's going to be able to help you that much. And so you should take as much out of your training experiences as possible. Right. And that means, again, really making sure you learn to do it yourself and not just have people help you do it and then move on. You don't want to be a cog in the in the machine. You want to be able to ideally understand how the entire machine works and be able to do as many functions of that machine as possible. Yeah. You know, and I know that when you were trying to learn uh, Bayesian mixed treatment comparison uh, meta-analysis and trying to, you know, that one of the things that you wanted to see once you thought that you had it was whether or not you could replicate what somebody else had done. And I think at that moment, you realized that it was a lot more complex than it seemed like it was when, you know, you were just going through the process, just, you know, oh, well, this article makes it seem like you just do this. And, you know, this book that you bought makes it seem like you just do this and you hit this button and then the magic happens. But when you actually tried to go in and tried to replicate it, even though that replication by itself wasn't publishable, it really was like your final exam. At that point, you realize that there was a lot more that goes into making sausages than you had thought there was. Absolutely. And, and to this day, I still do the same thing. If I'm going to go and build a pharmacoeconomic model in a specific area, I often go back and I find one that I think is a, an exemplar or a very good example. And I go and I try to rebuild it. And then if I can rebuild it and I can get the same results, then I know I'm doing it right. And then all I need to do is maybe go back a few steps and make alterations to the model as I feel necessary to adapt to perhaps it's a new drug with a, maybe in the same disease state, but with a different mechanism of action or a different side effect. Yeah, and that's all about the ability of doing it. It goes back to that concept of self-teaching again and being able to continually fill your, your toolbox with research tools. What is the value to the pharmacy profession of having a pharmacist be selected as a panelist at a major international medical society 
or having a pharmacist research project being reported on Good Morning America or having your data or having you be involved in creating national practice guidelines? Pharmacists aren't just people who provide a product that prescribers or practitioners direct you to, to dispense, right? We have a unique role in the healthcare system that when optimally deployed, allows for better patient and financial outcomes. And I don't think pharmacists should accept being on the sidelines when healthcare decisions are being made, but they should be considered as national or international experts that pharmacists need to create impactful, invisible contributions to the biomedical literature in order to be seen as unique and important contributors to the medical profession. So even if you're doing great things, if no one outside the walls of your institution know you're doing it, so you could be the best pharmacist in the hospital, right? But if no, if no one outside the hospital sees it, you're really never going to break through and grow and develop, help pharmacy develop as a career that reputation of being truly important. I think for too many years, we as pharmacy, pharmacy as a profession, haven't invested in ways to propel young pharmacists into successful research careers, or even to help accelerate mid-career researchers up into those upper echelons, right? And I think that's where organizations and foundations like the ASHP Foundation has really made a commitment to do just that, right? And so, it's been incredibly important to my career, the involvement of the ASHP Foundation, and I hope they continue, and I'm sure they will continue, to provide those opportunities to other pharmacists. All right. Well, now we're up to uh, the wrap-up. So that's all the time we have today. I've been speaking with Dr. Craig Coleman, and I want to thank him for joining us today to discuss how a pharmacist can start and maintain a successful research program. One of the key notions we discussed today was both persistence and adaptability. Like Kenny Rogers says, you got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them. Starting out new to a research area can be unnerving. Funders and editors may tell you no early on, but if you believe in your ideas and you're passionate about your area, keep pushing forward, keep refining, keep moving it forward and good things will happen. We talked about relationship building. We talked about doing what you can do in order to be able to distinguish yourself. When you get that first morsel of outside money, make sure you use that opportunity and you deliver the stuff that you had promised on time and with good quality so that when they look at you next time, they're not just looking at someone who they've never interacted before. They're looking at someone who came in and delivered. However, if your research area is nearing the end of its effective life cycle, or if a new area is emerging that has a great potential for impact, greater than what you're currently doing, pivot and do something new and reinvent yourself. The key is that while you're learning a new technique, make sure you're also learning how to teach yourself so that you can maintain your viability over the course of your career. And that's all the time we have for our podcast today. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official. 
the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.